The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome once again to the Capital Weekly Podcast. I am Capital Weekly's Editor-in-Chief, Rich Eisen, joined as always by my partner in crime, Tim Foster. How are you doing today, Tim? I'm well. How are you, Rich? I'm doing fabulous, uh, somehow managing to stay dry amidst this uh, latest atmospheric re- river that is uh, dumping on us in buckets uh, all day and all night. But yeah. other than that, you know, hey, it's all good. No complaints. And uh, we're joined today uh, by one of our favorite guests, uh, the man who knows as much about numbers when it comes to elections and polling and, and what's going on, uh, maybe behind the curtain of elections and how these things are tabulated and tracked. Uh, Paul Mitchell, how are you doing today, Paul? I'm doing great. I'm watching the trees blow and the windows outside my office and uh, hoping that uh, we don't all get flooded out today. Yeah, well, you, don't you basically have a river in your backyard, Paul? We have a county uh, drainage runoff thing that goes up against our backyard, so it's like a lake right now. Yeah, you know, my my previous house where we're at now, we we were semi-rural and we had what was mostly a dry uh, creek bed through the front of our property. But days like this or weeks, months, seasons like this, it would get uh, really, really close to us and <laughs> very uncomfortably close to us. So I, I relate to what you're saying. Yeah. Anyway, so- we wanted to talk today, I know, about uh, some interesting things in relation to some voting patterns, and particularly, we're going to start with some interesting voting patterns as they relate to Latino voters. Um, Paul, why don't you get us rolling here on this? What what have you got for us? Yeah, so I, um, I put something together that will likely be going up on the Capitol uh, Weekly website uh, soon here, looking at how the state's recent kind of decade of work in election reforms has really panned out Um, for, you know, to kind of start the story, the 2014 primary or the 2014 election, the gubernatorial election cycle was kind of the low watermark um, for turnout in California. And it was one that really sparked a lot of lawmakers into action, uh, trying to figure out how can we make sure that we have, you know, a healthy democracy and a healthy democracy oftentimes is defined as kind of having those high turnout elections. And the issue is not just turnout levels, like you don't get a gold star for having an extra million people vote, but it's the idea that when you have really low turnout elections, you end up having elections that just aren't representative of the whole state. When turnout drops, it doesn't drop from all groups equally. It drops precipitously for young voters and renters and Latinos and, and you know, those in low, lower socioeconomic status. And so the reformers, you know, we're talking Lorena Gonzalez, Alex Padilla, you know, uh, legislators and statewide lawmakers, uh, nonprofit groups uh, and others that were really advocating for this work. Their goal was to create reforms that would increase turnout and disproportionately increase turnout for those traditional low turnout populations, really lift up those groups so that ultimately we could have elections that look more like the California electorate. Now, fast forward from 2014 till the most recent election in 2022, 
And what's surprising is that we've seen massive improvements, like double digit improvements in turnout and voter registration. We've seen the voter file skyrocket to 22 million voters from 17 and change. We've seen, you know, turnout for, you know, all parts of the state really balloon and grow. And so that's good. But the other reality is that we haven't seen that same improvement or rate of improvement for Latinos um, and also for some Black voters as well. So the reforms as we've seen them and looked at, you know, from both through the pandemic and through the 2022 election cycle, it just hasn't really carried a lot of movement in those Latino numbers. So, uh, you know, we think about Latinos as the largest share of the state's population. Uh, they're about a third of the um, eligible voters. They're about 28% of the registered voters, but, you know, they'll end up being around 25% of actual turnout. They've, the, the story goes through a lot of the numbers and I don't want to bore us with a bunch of math on the podcast. So the article will probably lay it out a little bit better, but we're really just seeing improvements from these reforms, mostly among young voters. So young voters have, you know, almost doubled their turnout in, you know, that period from 2014 till now. Uh, but, you know, other than those young voters, really, it hasn't just carried the, you know, hasn't really shifted the electorate as much as we had hoped. Well, Paul, one of the things you noted, too, is that this comes in spite of there being a pretty significant increase in registration among Latino and Black voters, correct? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, the increase in registration for Latinos, basically like round numbers from 4 million to 6 million. Uh, so that's a huge increase. And in terms of turnout, uh, we saw about 2 million Latinos turn out in this last election versus only 1.1 million Latinos turn out in 2014. So if we just stop the podcast there, people would be like, wow, that's awesome. But when everybody is increasing their turnout, that improvement among Latinos can kind of get a little bit washed away. So what we really wanted to see was Latinos becoming a larger share of the total electorate. And they have become a larger share of the total electorate a little bit. Um, and kind of disappointingly, we looked at LA. In LA, this is shocking. In LA in 2013 mayoral race, Latinos were 23% of the electorate. Uh, now that was only 93,000 ballots in 2013. We go forward to 2024 mayoral race, really the next competitive mayoral race, 220,000 Latinos cast ballots. So again, if we stop right there, that sounds awesome. Wait, you're saying 2024, you mean 2022? 2022, yeah. So in 2022, LA mayor's race, 220,000 Latinos cast ballots versus 93 in 2014. But kid you not, still just 23% of the electorate. So the Latino share of the electorate in the LA mayor's race in 2013 and 2022 was identical, which is crazy. They had massive increases, but also just massive increases in turnout overall kind of washed away that benefit. And so the, the issue is essentially that we've seen these reforms rise, you know, tied for all boats and increase the total number of votes cast, but not do the lifting that was probably necessary to increase the turnout from the, 
you know, lower income minority communities as much. And that has meant that, you know, if the goal was to make the electorate look more like California, these reforms are still falling short. Now, what's interesting is I remember when they were talking about this going to a male election, there were concerns about young voters because people were saying, oh, young people don't really do mail. This is not going to be a normal thing for them. They haven't grown up. They probably never sent a letter or a stamp, you know, bought a stamp in their lives. You don't, you don't have to buy a stamp in California yeah. for a thing. But still, that idea that this, you know, putting something in a post office box or I mean, putting something in a mailbox was not a normal thing for them. That seems to have not played out at all. Yeah, so it's oftentimes hard to disaggregate the effects of different reforms that are happening simultaneously. Simultaneous to this, you know, shift to voting by mail was a different reform called automatic voter registration. Automatic voter registration, particularly the NCOA, National Change of Address, automatic registration means that when you move, the state will automatically re-register you. That has disproportionately impacted young voters. We talked about this in an article I did for Capital Weekly probably a decade ago, but the reality is that young voters age 18 to 29, on average move four times through that period of 10 years. For Latino young voters, it's five times in that period of 10 years. And so if you're a registered voter and your voter registration is tied to your location and snaps and breaks every time you move, then as a young voter in the older system, you would have to re-register and then re-register again and then re-register again and re-register again almost every election cycle. Now that reform basically removes that place-bound nature of your registration, allows your registration to move with you, gets you re-registered in your current precinct from your old one. That ability of the automatic registration to keep young people's registrations uh, current is probably why we're seeing this massive increase in turnout. Potentially, even if there is a negative impact of the mailing aspect of the ballots, it is more than compensated for by the increased registration and the fact that those registrations are just so much better. We have a bigger voter file with those 22 million voters, but we also have a much cleaner voter file. Cleaner meaning, you know, the right people are registered at their current addresses and, and all that information is correct. So that's probably benefiting young people more than anything else. Well, and actually, you know, the voter file is one of those things. So uh, when you talk about turnout, turnout is based on the voter file, not on just the general population, correct? Yeah, this is a kind of a little nerd war. Um there was a tweet that uh, John Meyer sent out in the 2022 primary where he was like, well, there's not much we know about this election. One thing we don't know is it's going to be really low turnout. And I responded back, like, why are you saying that? Why do you think it's going to be low turnout? Because even if percentage wise, it's low turnout when looking at people voting versus the total registered population, the primary was the highest number of votes cast. The increase in the voter file means that more people are voting, but it also means in that formula of who voted divided by who's registered, it looks like a lower percentage. So really, really, really the way we should think about turnout is who voted as a function of who was eligible to vote versus who was registered. But right. we as a state, the you know elected officials, the reporters, everybody talks about it as a function of registration. So um, yeah, I don't want to get overly mathy and nerdy, but we have this issue where the turnout 
rate can actually drop. But because our voter file has grown so much, we're actually seeing more voters cast ballots. Well, and maybe make that definition clear between eligible to vote and registered to vote. Yeah. Because most people would just automatically presume it's the same thing. Yeah, I mean, there are eligible voters who aren't registered to vote, um, people who are over 18 and citizens. And the source of that data, like saying, what's the California eligible voter population is from the census. Um, and so we do have an eligible voter population. Then we have the people who have gone through the trouble of registering. Now, California is right around 85%, meaning that 85% of our eligible voters are actually registered. And that's higher than we've seen in over a century of California history. That's crazy, crazy high registration rates. And largely due to these reforms to increase uh, voter registration through automatic registration, improved DMV registration, and so on. Um, but that doesn't mean that everybody's registered. There are still some voters out there or eligible voters who are not registered to vote. And are what lessons uh, should we be you know, what are the takeaways, I guess, from looking at these numbers? And I, I know I don't want to put you in a position of making a political statement, but, you know, what kind of research maybe needs to happen from this point forward to better understand what yeah. this relative stagnation of Latino voting uh, really means for, you know, for future elections? So uh, Mindy Romero and Eric McGee, uh, had done a report on this in March of 22. They released it right, you know, before the 22 primary. Um, and it was the one that looked at the 2020 election and said, like, hey, there's some concerns here. Um, we need to rely on them and other researchers to dive in and really unpack how and why this is happening. Um, you know, I had the benefit of being able to be involved in some focus groups in 2020 looking at voters that were, you know, being pushed to being vote by mail and trying to ask them, you know, what their concerns were. And we need to dive into that more, probably need more education and more outreach around this. Also, there are different setups of how voting is done county by county still. Um, it seems as though the counties that are in full Voters Choice Act, where they're doing all the public outreach and they're doing, you know, these full methods of, of engaging voters, those might be performing a little bit better. And so we need to look at those education outreach pieces and see how much of that can be done. But again, that's resources, that's money that needs to be spent in a lot of these counties to try to educate voters uh, and help them become more comfortable with this current voting system or adjust the system to kind of meet them where they are. And what are you looking uh, to also, you know, we're, we're already looking at 2024, like the Senate race in particular, we got lots of hats already thrown into the ring. There are a lot of factors at play here, aside from just who's actually already declared or who might conceivably declare in the future, correct? Yeah. So kind of switching from this, you know, general, like how we approach future elections and looking at this most next immediate next election, the, you know, I just had a reporter call me right before I got on this and they were trying to get me to say that, you know, this traditional answer about like the political matchup in these among these candidates in the U.S. Senate race. And I suggested to her like, no, 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 let's step back and look at this election for a second. The reality is that presidential primaries are really strange elections because in one presidential primary, your candidate that's the Republican is the incumbent 
And there's really no reason for you to turn out and vote because like, you know, there's no real race on the Republican side, but there's like 20 Democratic candidates and all the Democrats are running around with their hair on fire, like motivated to turn out and vote. So you create these real asymmetric elections. You'll have one election that's super high Democratic turnout and really low Republican. And the next one, it flips. And now you've got, you know, a half dozen Republican candidates and an incumbent Democrat. So what we're looking at in this cycle for the primary is really going to be determined by if Biden runs for reelection. Once that field sets up that there's essentially no primary on the Democratic side and a red hot primary on the Republican side in a March primary, which is Super Tuesday, where California delegates might be, you know, the hottest ticket available, you could see a turnout that's very heavily Republican and a lot fewer Democrats, you know, turning out. And you could see Republican voters comprising maybe 40% of the electorate, maybe 42% of the electorate. That's crazy to think of. I was going to say that seems crazy to me. It, it does sound crazy, but I mean, unless unless Arnold Schwarzenegger is running for president, which is not going to happen because he can't <laughs> be president, but someone like that, you know, I mean, how, I mean, what do we only have? Tw- I don't remember the exact numbers, like 28 percent Republican registration in California right now. Is oh, no, right? it's like 24 or something like that. So but remember, about 35 to 38 percent statewide of votes cast or cast for Republicans. Now, the Republican primary is closed. so. Independents that wanted to vote in the Republican primary would have to re-register as a Republican before um, the primary in order to be able to vote uh, in the Republican primary. But that increased turnout from Republicans could create a really strange uh, setup. And and how does that impact the Senate race? Well, if one Republican gets in the U.S. Senate race and let's say Republicans comprised 40 percent of the primary election turnout, You've got three Democrats right now splitting up the vote. You could very easily see a Republican making the runoff. Is there and any the, is any Republican even announced for the Senate yet? No, no, they're talking. You know, they're you know the candidates right now are wondering whether some like rich Republican will throw his hat in the ring. Any Republican, if there's one significant Republican that jumps in the race, the media will have to cover that candidate. You know, a general poll, like if uh, you know IGS just put out a poll of the U.S. Senate race, they didn't even put they didn't even put Republican voters in their sample. They just only polled among Democrats. But if you put a Republican in the in an IGS poll, they could end up being the top vote getter if they're the only Republican on the ballot. So you're saying Larry Elder is going to be the top uh, vote getter? In our Larry state. Elder would be the top vote getter in the, uh, well, if there's oh, a very... I, I'm curious. Now, clearly, Dianne Feinstein has made it clear that she doesn't intend to step down. What is there... Well, she's stepping down. She's... Well, but, but I mean, before, not before her term ends. Oh, yeah, yeah, of course. So I'm just curious, you know, because we, we always hear, well, OK, would have been a real big advantage if she had if she had stepped down today and Newsom could name somebody to replace her, maybe himself, maybe somebody else about the advantage that that uh, would give that person as an incumbent. It, is, how, is that real? How does that actually is there any data on that where we would how would that change things if that had played out that way? And it still could, right? Um, if at any time before the primary, uh, Diane Feinstein steps down for any reason, uh, the governor will have to replace her uh, with an appointment. It won't be optional. Um, and he has said that he would appoint a black woman to that office. 
the names that have been thrown around before were uh, Holly Mitchell, uh, now an LA County Supervisor, Karen Bass, now the LA Mayor, and Barbara Lee. Um, that would be a big impact on the race if the governor was to appoint somebody and uh, unless he appointed somebody who wasn't running in the primary and it was past the filing deadline. But if it's before the filing deadline and he were to appoint somebody and somebody was the incumbent, they'd automatically be the front runner in that race. I think it would be, um, it would start to become very challenging for uh, anybody to be running against somebody who is an incumbent Democratic, even though they're appointed uh, U.S. Senate uh, candidate. Well, and the reason I ask that is because you're laying out a scenario where a Republican could conceivably make a make a runoff and, and conceivably have a, a pretty good chance to win, which, of course, could conceivably upset the entire balance of the U.S. Senate, right, because they come to count on California so, you know, as being true blue, so to speak. So by that, Diane Feinstein not stepping away before her term ends and not giving somebody that chance to be an incumbent, it really could have a complete, a very impactful, uh, very deep impact on whether Dems retain the Senate. Yeah, so me, I'd say that would be true your... if this was, that'd be true if this was 1993 as opposed yeah. to 2023. Okay. Um, I, think I think personally, this... I think a, a sprig of parsley with a D on it, <laughs> a Republican in California at this point. I mean, I just don't see unless, again, unless it was someone like maybe Arnold Schwarzenegger uh, or someone like that, but I just a generic, at this point in time with the, the political makeup of the state, that is basically inconceivable, I yeah. think. I mean, well, and the point of the point of diving into this idea of a Republican making the runoff isn't so much that the Republican would have a chance in the general. It's that how does that change which candidate could end up winning? Because if Republican makes the runoff, essentially the race is decided in the primary. So if you're Adam Schiff or Katie Porter or Barbara Lee, do you spend all your money and try to get yourself into that spot in the runoff against a Republican? Do IEs spend money? to prop up a Republican so that that top voting Democrat can make the runoff against a Republican in order to make sure that there's no general election fight? Or if you're one of those three candidates, do you really want to go in a general election against another Democrat? Well, is, that quickly, is, is, is Gary South running any of their campaigns? Because then we'll know the answer to that. Oh, you're going way back for people. Uh, the Gray Davis versus Bill Simon campaign, right? Yeah. Um, well, yeah, that's, now that we've completely squashed Republican dreams again, I was I was trying to lay out a scenario where there there might be some hope. But OK, mean, well, if Republicans have a hope, his name's Dwayne The Rock Johnson. Um, he's not a Republican. He's not even probably moderate or not even conservative, uh, probably more of a moderate. But, you know, he's been thrown out there as a potential candidate for the U.S. Senate. And that would definitely be an interesting top two runoff, the rock versus a Democrat. That would be interesting. Um, right. Right. But, uh, things have know, happened. We've seen it. Yeah, I know it. Ha the uh, other thing, though, just before we get off this topic, the it isn't just the U.S. Senate race. I was talking to a candidate for the legislature in a district where Republicans are only like 19 percent or 20 percent of the likely voters in a normal election. But in a primary the Republican turnout could be 40% of the voters in their election. And, you know, whether or not in a legislative race, you're looking at 
you know, facing a, another Democrat in the runoff or facing a Republican, this is going to impact how these races are are run. It's going to impact how, you know, whether or not people can close out a race in the primary. Democrats can close out a race in the primary by getting a Republican opponent. We saw that here in Sacramento with, uh, you know, Kevin McCarty being able to avoid a runoff by getting a Republican uh, into the general election. We've seen that up and down the ballot with campaigns using that tactic of, you know, wanting to get a Republican in the runoff because that closes out their election right after the primary. Yeah. So I've got another piece that I'll throw together and we can get that up on the Capitol Weekly site at some point, looking at this issue and kind of diving into some of the numbers. Because as we start to think about turnout, um, we really have to think about what are going to be the motivations for voters on either side of that partisan aisle? Well, before we leave the primary topic, uh, what is the polling telling us about the announced candidates, aside from The Rock, uh, who is not announced? Uh, where are they in the, uh, in the Senate campaign? Yeah, so IGS did a poll um, where they went in and looked at these congressional, at these U.S. Senate candidates. And like I mentioned, they actually didn't, poll any Republican voters. They only went to Democratic voters. And in that poll, they showed Adam Schiff slightly ahead of uh, Katie Porter. And but not to, uh, you know, it wasn't a big lead. I think it was like 25 to 22 kind of numbers or something like that. Um, and we have been doing our own kind of like continual polling on, you know, California voters. And we've seen something kind of similar that, uh, you know, it's essentially Katie Porter and Adam Schiff at the top. Um, one thing we did that they didn't do was we did include Republicans uh, and include even Republican candidates uh, to kind of see where those, you know, voters would land. Um, obviously, Republicans aren't likely to vote for a Democrat in the primary um, so, you know, giving them a Republican alternative makes the results a little bit more meaningful. But, you know, you're still seeing Katie Porter, Adam Schiff um, as being the top vote getters. Barbara Lee uh, is there, but she just doesn't have the same statewide name recognition as the rest of the voters yet. Well, um, I also wonder with Barbara Lee, given that age is such an issue in Dianne Feinstein's elections and discussions about her Senate seat, I'm not exactly sure, but I think that Barbara Lee is going to be a push in 80 when that uh, election happens. Barbara Lee looks young. I got to tell you that. Barbara Lee looks young. She, she also, um, she comes from the Bay Area and people might say, well, who cares? Like, but the reality is that um, primary voters in the Bay Area are disproportionately higher turnout. They, they, they swing more elections. Uh, and when you look at statewide, statewide for the past 20 years, there's been on average around two and a half of the 10 constitutional offices have been held by Southern Californians. On average, seven or eight of the 10 statewide offices have been held by Democrats from Northern California. And so Barbara Lee being from the Bay Area gives her a disproportionate kind of advantage in terms of that geographic footprint. But I mean, even she would tell you, even her campaign would tell you, they don't have the kind of statewide name recognition and star power that um, that both Katie Porter and Adam Schiff have. 
Unless Feinstein steps down today and Newsom names her. Unless Feinstein steps down between now and the filing deadline, you know, and names are actually between now and the day before the primary. I mean, really, anytime if the governor were to appoint somebody, uh, you know, to that Senate seat, then they would become a front runner despite fundraising or other disadvantages potentially. I mean, that's obviously a big endorsement if the governor appoints someone. Is do endorsements make that much difference in this sort of race at this point? Um, I think endorsements will matter, particularly Katie Porter and Adam Schiff have a lot of overlapping fundraising bases, a lot of overlapping kind of support among voters. Either they love the whiteboard stuff or they love the impeachment stuff, like Democrats have reasons, those those Democrats that see those two candidates as stars on the national level have reasons to, um, you know, vote for those candidates. But when they're pitted up against each other, they are going to be looking for some external clues as to like where to go. And so some endorsements likely will matter. You did see uh, Katie Porter jump on, you know, supporting Governor Newsom in this Walgreens fight over the myth over, you know, the, the disbursement of, of uh, abortion medication. Um, I think that was kind of smart for her. And I would expect uh, all the candidates in this race to be doing those kind of things where they jump on the kind of issues that are really California, uh, you know, Gavin Newsom style progressive Democratic issues um, and try to, you know, capture some of that attention that Gavin Newsom's currently getting, especially on this on these abortion issues. Well, when I saw that she, uh, Katie Porter, invited Lorena Gonzalez to be her guest at the State of the Union. And so I was like, oh, is that a cue that she's locked, trying to lock up the union, you know, backing here in California? Well, I mean, that would be a big part of this calculus for Democratic candidates. Um, and uh, but I don't know anything more than you about who's going to lock up those union voters or if anybody is. It might just be all over the map. Well, thank you so much, Paul. This has been fascinating. And uh, I'm sure we will come back to you many times between now and the actual primary. Uh, do you have any parting thoughts before we go to the, the worst week? Any parting thoughts on on uh, things to watch the next, you know, immediate future as far as the upcoming elections and voter registrations, et cetera? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, on the on the upcoming elections, I just think everybody needs to be paying attention to uh, what Biden does. Um, on one hand, it seems like really apparent what Biden's going to do. He's going to announce re-election. On the other hand, if I was writing a book and it was about a president wanting to hand over power to their vice president, they'd be doing the exact same thing. They'd be freezing out the field by making everybody convinced that they're running for re-election before they don't so that their vice president has the best leg up. I'm not saying that that's what's happening, but I'm just saying that it's a little premature to know for sure what's going to happen. Because um, if he was trying to do the opposite, he'd be taking the same kind of steps right now. Um, and then, uh, you know, in this election reform space, uh, looking at how we increase turnout among uh, these traditionally lower turnout voters has to really be target number one for, you know, Shirley Weber, the current secretary of state, um, and for, you know, lawmakers who want to see an electorate that looks more like California. You know, we talk about voter trust in elections. Um, I think voters lose trust in elections when they realize that the elected officials, the ballot measures that are passing and failing are a function of a older, wider segment of California that's just not representative of who lives here and who 
you know, benefits from or suffers from the policies that these policymakers and ballot measures create. So um, it should be really issue number one uh, to try to figure out how to make sure that our elections look more like California. And we shouldn't shy away from recognizing, uh, you know, when these reforms aren't doing everything we want to do. You know, the first step is admitting we have a problem. <laughs> All right. Well, Paul Mitchell, so did you, I, I think you, uh, you have a plane to catch, so you probably want to jump off, but you're welcome yeah. to join us for the worst week if you would, would care to, or you can head off to Sacramento's fine uh, airport and go hang out with the Red Rabbit. Well, I'm, if I drive to the airport and have to find my way to the airport from the long-term lot that I will be the nominee for the worst week. So uh, <laughs> hopefully not, hopefully it won't be me. So I'll, so, I'll sign off, but thank you. All right, Paul. Thanks so much. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you, Paul. Thanks. The worst week. Worst week. Worst week. So, the worst week in California politics. Well, Tim, I, I know you. You have a nominee, so I'll let you uh, lead the way here. Yes, I. You know, we normally don't do this this early in the week, but I, I think I feel safe in saying that that Lorena Gonzalez, head of the California Labor Federation, former uh, legislator. Uh, and the author of AB5 is probably having a pretty crappy week because the ruling on overturning Prop 22, which happened earlier, uh, was overturned. And now Prop 22 can go forward and will, I'm sure that challenge will go to the Supreme Court. Am I reading that correctly? You are. Yeah. Well, that's that's the, the goal is to get it to, um, yes, to appeal it directly to the Supreme Court. However, California Supreme Court, I want to be clear on that too. After that, it would ostensibly could go to the National Supreme Court. Am I correct there or no? Yes, uh, there's steps to that, but yes, it, they could make an expedited appeal. Uh, and you know, and it's worth noting too that they they actually did uphold some of the law, or or, or they didn't allow they didn't say that the law could go into effect in its entirety. There were elements to it that they said the ballot measure had overstepped its its constitutional uh authority but the bulk of the of the matter which is how uh gig drivers uber and lyft drivers and doordash delivery people could be treated that didn't change at all and that's the part that that the uh the litigants were after right and, and the irony here is of course that the state supreme court is actually fairly liberal at this point as all things go uh, you know, compare in comparison. But then, of course, if it does go to the national Supreme Court, it's got a rightward tilt that is more extreme than anything really in my lifetime that I can remember. So uh, this is a pretty a, a moving, a moving target. Uh, but again, I'm sure that uh, Lorena Gonzalez was not happy to see that decision. That was a bad turn, bad turn of events for labor. Absolutely. And, you know, it's really interesting because you know, one of the things that the law or that the ballot measure did is it requires a seven eighths supermajority for the legislature to make any amendments to the law. And that's what the lower court really objected to. They said that that's a you know gross overstepping of your bounds there. And then here the first district court came along and said, no, it's OK. <laughs> you know, so uh, it's just a, it's interesting how these things go. But, yes, uh, I would have to think that Lorena Gonzalez was, was not happy with that decision at all. 
So you know, I I will add one more, and this is definitely uh, the 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 court ruling is the definite number one. The only other one I'm sure you saw uh, going going back to the whole Tom Girardi situation. Um, you saw this new report came out that really made this the California State Bar look very very bad in uh, in how they were influenced by Girardi, and particularly a million dollars in cash and gifts to a bar investigator. Uh, that the uh, this report said it was more likely than not, quote unquote, that they were affected by these connections and these gifts and everything. That is a terrible look for the California State Bar, which has been under its share of criticism for a long time anyway. Uh, this case is really. Um, really not making them look any better in the eyes of a lot of people in California. Another show, I hope, for for our listeners, I hope everybody enjoyed that because Paul Mitchell knows as much about what is going on with election data as anybody I think I've ever seen in my many decades in this business. You know, we used to refer to him as the Nate Silver of California, but I actually think that might be kind of insulting to Paul now, given given (laughs) Nate Silver's record over the past few years. Uh, I think Paul's more accurate than Nate Silver. So, uh, all right. Well, have a good uh, have a good week, and we'll we'll talk soon. Absolutely. Take care, Tim. The Capital Weekly Podcast is produced by Tim Foster for Open California. If you enjoyed today's episode, we hope you'll go onto iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a positive review. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>